Hey folks, it's the Electables Podcast. We're on the other side of Super Tuesday, and I'm with my partner in crime, Adrian Alrod. We're actually together today. Nice to see you in the actual flesh. Yeah, it's been a it's been a couple weeks. We've both been on the road. Uh, Elrod has been in uh, all of the key battlegrounds for the primary, um, and uh, we're going to look back today on uh, Super Tuesday, and then also look ahead to this mini Super Tuesday that we have coming up with one of our friends, Jamal Simmons, who is a uh, I, what, former Democratic strategist, now a uh, one of the top uh, opinion a- uh, leaders and analysts. Uh, he's at CBS News. He used to be at The Hill. He's also a former guest on the show. He's also from Michigan, too, so he's going to be our Michigan expert today. So, Jamal, welcome back to uh, the podcast. Welcome, Jamal. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me again, guys. Thank you for joining us. Lots happening. There's a lot happening. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we just start with your take on the state of the race right now? Well, uh, you guys have been watching the news, and I'm sure all your listeners have, just like I have. And what we saw was one of the greatest political turnarounds um, uh, in Joe Biden's comeback after South Carolina um, that we've seen. And, you know, here's one of the things that's interesting, Doug and, and Adrian, you guys have been through this like 2004. We remember 2004, Howard Dean was sort of the insurgent candidate, right? And, and John Kerry, remember was the it establishment well. candidate. <laughs> <laughs> you remember it well, Doug, you lived it hard. And, um, you know, the thing about the establishment candidate, when the establishment candidate starts winning, they've got a lot of wind at their backs, and it tends to go pretty well. In 2008, Barack Obama was the insurgent candidate, and Hillary Clinton was a little bit more of the establishment candidate. So when Obama started to win, he really had to kind of fight for each one of these delegates, each one of these states, going on and on and on into the final into the final contest. It really wasn't over. Um so what we're seeing now is Bernie Sanders, though he built up a head of steam, I think he just couldn't keep that head of steam going long enough, hard enough. And I think it's his fault. And I, and I say this for this reason, because he ne- he didn't, when he started to win, he didn't really open up his arms to embrace the Democratic Party, to welcome people onto his campaign, to say, hey, I know that we may disagree on some things, but we're going to take on Donald Trump. We're winning. Here's what we can do together. I want you to join me. Let's go fight and win. Instead, he put a challenge down that he was not only going to beat the Republican Party, but he was also going to take on the establishment of the Democratic Party. Um, And it turns out that establishment, I think, isn't really just some faraway group of donors and people. It's elected officials who've been elected by workers and women and African-Americans and Latinos. And it's also a bunch of black voters and Latino voters around the country and, 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 and union members. And I mean, all these people who really have for a long time been part of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic political movement called the Democratic Party. And you can't both beat the Republicans and try to beat the Democratic Party in order to be the Democratic nominee. God, Jamal, you, you raised such a smart, that's such a smart point. I think maybe that tweet that he sent out that was, I'm going to take on, you know, both the Republican establishment and the Democratic Party's establishment, that might have been a fatal tweet to him. You know, and I think once people started realizing, oh my gosh, we could possibly lose the House, the last remaining firewall against Donald Trump if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket. And this is not a knock on Bernie Sanders. This is just realistically what the numbers look like with a, you know, Democratic Socialist at the top of the ticket. It's not a guarantee, of course, but um, it started, people started realizing, wait a minute, 
we were just so focused on winning the White House. But, oh, my gosh, we cannot afford to lose Congress. You know, and and all of those factors and, of course, then, you know, the kingmaker Jim Clyburn endorsing um, at the 11th hour and um, the unity ticket that or the unity um, movement that took place after that was just, you know, all of those things, I think, contributed a lot to Biden's, um, you know, stature now. So, Jamal, you're from Michigan. You know the state really well. Yeah. You've been talking to folks there. Give us your take. I mean, is this, you know, we thought we were going to win Michigan, we and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Our analytics show that we were going to win Michigan um, by 10 points. We lost Michigan by a point. So tell us what you think. Is this a state that Biden's got in the bag? Um, Is Bernie going to win it again? What are your thoughts? Well, it's tricky. You know, I think one of the reasons why um, Secretary, Senator, First Lady Clinton, (laughs) most Mm -hmm. qualified, presidential candidate of my life, mm-hmm. um, wasn't able to be successful in that campaign was because there were a bunch of drop-off voters. Of course, there were those um, Obama-Trump switchers that everybody talks about. But if you look at a city like Detroit, which is heavily African-American, um, had a big surge, big turnout for Obama in 2012, you know, 50,000 voters didn't show up in Detroit uh, on Election Day, and she ended up losing the state by 10,000 votes. I think that um, we have to be really mindful about which voters we're talking about when we're thinking about these states. So for, for Bernie Sanders, he may be able to inspire some of those people who were missing voters to show up this time, um, but he's going to have to show that. And I think he hasn't had so far the track record, it's a consistent track record in these early primaries of being able to turn those voters out and the numbers required to overwhelm. Um, kind of the older, more settled, more pragmatic voters um, who are picking Joe Biden. And there's been a um, rush uh, of endorsements towards Biden in, in Michigan. Uh, the the governor, Gretchen uh, Whitmer, endorsed yesterday on Morning Joe. The lieutenant governor, uh, Galen Gil- it's Galen- Garland Gilchrist, uh, endorsed, uh, I believe, today. Um, you know, the... There's been a lot of debate. I think there's All always the a lot of, of Congress have been endorsing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and, and you know, there were I think there were three, <clears throat> three or four new members from Michigan who got elected in 2018. Um, but there's a, there's always been a lot of debate about the importance of endorsements. Um, sometimes they are underestimated. Sometimes they are overestimated. Uh, in this race, you know, I think it has forced me to to revisit the importance of an endorsement because I think Jim Clyburn's endorsement of Joe Biden um, just a few days before South Carolina was so important to uh, sending a message to the community in South Carolina, not just African-Americans, but just also your, your, your run-of-the-mill Democrats who vote Democratic and they were looking for some sign that, you know what, Biden's got this. And Clyburn came in and did that. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on the importance of Clyburn's endorsement and the importance of endorsements in, in general. We've got Elizabeth Warren, who's out there now. People are ta- speculating about her endorsement. How important do you think well, you that know, let's, be? Let's also be, let's all, let's also be really honest here. You know, Vice President Biden didn't have the greatest set of debate performances <laughs> in this election cycle. Um, but he did have a really good debate at that CBS debate in South Carolina, 
right before uh, primary day. So that happened right before the um, right before the endorsement by Clyburn. So I think the two of those things together, like, okay, here's Joe Biden at the top of his form. And then here is Jim Clyburn, who didn't just say, I'm with this guy because, you know, I've been with him for a long time. He said, this is a good man. And, you know, I have a theory about this election. You know, there is always this idea that one presidency is kind of a reflection on the last presidency, right? Like people kind of look for something they didn't have in the last one. And I think we may have been overthinking this, that like Trump is so right wing, Trump is anti-immigration, he's anti all these things that that we are opposed to, he's encouraging you know, all these bad people to come out in public. But, you know, one thing about Donald Trump that even if you like him, you probably believe he's not really a decent human, right? Like he's he's kind of mean and he makes fun of people and um, he's been kind of a lousy husband by most measures. He's been, you know, kind of just a, a, a louse in many ways. And the thing about Joe Biden is he's incredibly decent. He's an incredibly good human being. And even, and it might just be, this is an election, well, people are just looking for a good, decent human being to be at the top of our government that we can all trust what it is that he has to say, and he's trying to do the right thing on behalf of the country and not just take care of himself. And by that measure, I think the Jim Clyburn endorsement kind of sealed that and said, look, I yeah. know this guy. He's a good guy. And I think people rally to that. It's really, I, I've never seen anything like it in my 25 years working in politics. And, you know, I've studied a lot of history, political history, and I don't think we've quite seen an endorsement make this much of an impact um, in such a short amount of time and really turn the race around for somebody who, to an extent, was, you know, sort of on his way down. Um, you know, he had some crappy finishes and um, Iowa and New Hampshire, and he got second in Nevada, but that didn't really seem to give him a, a lot of bounce. And so... Um, I think Jim Clyburn should have whatever job he wants in a future. In, in well, and Adrian, I think you said something important too, Adrian, because that whole idea that um, people saw this, the Bernie Sanders rising, and I think it was a very sobering moment for a yeah. lot of traditional Democrats. They call them the establishment, but I like to say they're just traditional Democrats who've been showing up for a long time. And I think they thought, wait a minute, are we sure? Are we really sure this is the path we want to go down? And they were looking for a sign or a signal. Jim Clyburn gave them the signal that maybe the way to go is to war Biden and people win. Yeah, and they were looking for somebody to consolidate around. They were looking for someone to tell them who to consolidate around. Is it Mayor Pete? Is it Amy Klobuchar? Is it Mike Bloomberg? Eh, they didn't really want to go with him anyway. Or is it Joe Biden? And so uh, Clyburn kind of gave him that permission. So, Jamal, I want to get into a little bit of the um, Bernie Sanders coalition and get your thoughts on this. You know, his campaign has been talking about how they really expanded his coalition. They've got all these even more younger people who are so engaged and so excited. And he's filling up these, you know, you know, these big arenas with a lot of young people. And of course, the Latinos really, you know, gave him the win in Nevada. Um, how do you think his coalition is shaping up given what happened on Tuesday night? Do you think he really is growing this coalition or do you think it's relatively stagnant um, when you compare it to what he did in 2016? Well, his schedule would say that it's it's shrinking, right? We just saw that Senator Sanders got out of a, uh, an event in Mississippi, pulled out of Mississippi and headed to Michigan, right? So instead of expanding the number of states and events he's doing, he's contracting, which tells you that they're they're just trying to hold on in some way um, to, to whatever they can win. Um, 
you know, there's a, there is a yellow flag here for Vice President Biden, which is that Senator Sanders does inspire young people. He does make people think of doing something bigger and different. And there are a lot of Democrats, particularly the ones we need to show up and perform, who maybe didn't show up in 2016. There are a lot of Democrats who don't just want to go back to the calmness, quote unquote, before Trump, and who think that that calmness actually produced the conditions for Trump. And they want us to do, they want more change, not less. And I think that Joe Biden has got to figure out what is his change message to go and appeal to those voters um, because those like those Latinos who voted for or for uh, Senator Sanders, the, Af- the young African-Americans who did the white progressives who did like they really do want change. And I think Democrats should always be on the side of change. Jamal, why do you think, I mean, Bernie Sanders has been running for president really since 2015. Um, and there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a improve, any improvement with African-American voters. And I'm just, uh, you know, I just want to get your take on why do you think that is? And why do you think that Biden has done so well? I have some theories myself, um, but I'd love to get your, your take on it. Well, I do think, you know, we can't, we can't dismiss the age differential. We're seeing that in all the numbers, right? Like younger African-Americans, although now we are seeing Joe Biden penetrating younger African-American voters, too, in, in some of these states. I mean, he really is mistaking um, his claim. I saw a poll today from Florida where, you know, Vice President might be up 61 to 18 over um, over uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, and that's the general market. That's not just African-Americans. I mean, that's a, that would be a huge number if that holds to be true. Um, I I think... I think African-Americans, really older African-Americans, are the most pragmatic people in the country. They want change. They want something different. They also know that America America can disappoint you, <laughs> you know? Um, and so they're looking around for somebody who they think can get supported, you know, by the moderate middle of the country and could also um, do well by African-Americans. And one of the things... You know, someone said this in the panel I was on the other day. In some ways, you know, black voters are single issue voters. The first, the first level, it's who's the least racist one of these white people, <laughs> right? Like, who's the one of these people who I can trust the most, um, who won't screw us over? Um, and then they start thinking about a bunch of other issues. And you know, Joe Biden has a history and a legacy uh, with with um, with President Obama, and if Obama trusted him then we can trust him. And now Clyburn sort of puts the exclamation point on that. Yeah. You know, there's also a comfort level. I've, I've, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, Joe Biden is comfortable in the African-American community. Bill Clinton was comfortable in the yep. African-American community. Yep. When you watch some of these other candidates who are running for office who aren't in, or even Bernie Sanders, who is, they just seem like they're tourists, they don't seem like they're residents. <laughs> they don't seem like they're That's residents. Right. They seem like they're just That's sort right. of visiting and then are going to pop out. And I think, you know, I, and I think that's something that people can tell that there's a – and that makes a big difference. Um, people – I mean the Ob- Obama relationship is important, but to the comfort level and the connection is also deeply important. I like that point, uh, Doug, because – you know, one of the things about Joe Biden, it harks back when I worked for Max Cleland, who people who are listening, Max Cleland lost three limbs in the Vietnam War. So he was in a wheelchair. And um, in our first meeting in my job interview, uh, we started talking about 
um, he started talking about being in a wheelchair and he said, you know, the thing is, I know when I come into a room, I've got like however many seconds, a minute and a half to get people to stop thinking about the fact that I'm in a wheelchair and start listening to the words I have to say, or else they're never going to take their eyes off my legs and my missing arm. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, you know, Senator Cleveland, I feel the same way, right? I walk into a room as a person with black skin, skin and I know people the initial reaction people see is like a young black man at the time I was a young black man <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you're still a young black they, man Jamal that they see. <laughs> um, you know and then I have to sort of and I know that I can I want them to listen to what I have to say and what I'm thinking about instead. And I, and I, that's how we bonded. And I think about Joe Biden in this way, the pain he suffered in his life, the way he sort of had to come back to that pain. It's very humanizing. And I think that's one thing when he goes into a community of people who are used to dealing from a position of things not always working out the way they should. I just think there's a, there's a very human connection between him and people, not just in the African-American community, but anybody, as he says, who's been left out and counted out and left behind. So, Jamal, you're, you're from Michigan. Um, Rashida Tlaib is um, a very vocal member of Congress from Michigan um, who is uh, very much backing Bernie Sanders. How much do you think her weight behind Bernie will matter in that state in terms of the outcome Listen, on I Tuesday? Think are, I, think it, I think it matters to the Bernie coalition, which there are a lot of young people. There also are a lot of people who maybe they're on the more progressive edge of the progressive end of the worker rights movement, union movement. You know, Detroit and Michigan was the hotbed of activism in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, 1930s with the unions. And, and you know, there were there used to be a, a farmer labor party in Michigan. Um, you know, so it's really got a very long history of progressivism. Jesse Jackson won Michigan in 1988 when he ran against Dukakis for the primary. So there is this progressive liberal strain in the state that's historic. Um, and I think with that group of voters, she will be successful, you know, in energizing them. But this is a different election. And it's just so hard for us to think about this election without thinking about the specter of Donald Trump and how much Democrats really want to beat him. And it just seems like that's keeping everybody really sober. It's not a lot of pie in the sky in this Democratic electorate. Yeah. And to uh, and just to um, follow up on the point about the endorsements in Michigan, you know, Biden did. You know, he picked up Slotkins, Stevens, and Brenda Lawrence uh, on top of the uh, governor and lieutenant governor. Um, and uh, uh, I want to, I want to just pivot just real quick to uh, Elizabeth Warren leaving the race and get your take on what was what's her legacy. What do you think she brought to the race? And why why don't you think you know she was unsuccessful? I'll tell you, I think that she was the best potential president on the stage. Um, she was not the best candidate <laughs> in the race, uh, but she was the best potential president on the stage. Um, and I think she understood what was wrong with the economy. Um, the, the, the accumulation of power behind monopolies, um, all over the, all over the economy, not just banks, but also in technology, telecom, all these different places. And then how do we start to retilt the scales back toward working people? But her approach to doing it was different than Senator Sanders in the sense that, um, she still was pro innovation. She was pro markets. You know, she just she wanted a to regulate market. 
she was a capitalist, <laughs> right? And a Democrat. So I think, and a Democrat, and you know, who had been there for you know at least twenty years. Um, so I think that she had a, a real understanding about what was going on and what was wrong. I also think though that she, listen, she claimed that it was a plus that she'd never lost an election. I will tell you, as I believe this, as much as I believe anything about presidential politics, the best presidential candidates are the ones who've been knocked on their butt before in their life. The ones who've either lost an election, and in Donald Trump's case, he didn't lose an election, but he did have a public humiliation of going bankrupt um, and, and almost losing his entire economic shirt and having to battle back from that to figure out another way to get back into the heights of uh elite celebrity and the moneyed class, right? So he faced a really big loss in his professional life. And I just don't think there's any substitute for that because you learn something in that moment. Um, you know, Barack Obama had lost a congressional race. Bill Clinton lost the governor's mansion when he ran before. George W. Bush had lost a congressional race. Like all these presidents, Ronald Reagan, you know, lost a very high profile race for president. All these presidents have lost elections in their careers I just think there's no substitute to learning how to battle back and, 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 and get it right. And the last point I'll make is they did have some campaign mal- malpractice. Hopefully, one of the things that will be uh, uh, learned in this election is you cannot run for president without a pollster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, it seems romantic. <laughs> it seems like a good idea. We're not going to be influenced by polls and media right. advisors and yeah. all the stuff. People do this for a reason. You, you need information about what you're doing and the data from your, you know, from the electorate about how they're hearing what you're saying. Maybe it doesn't change your agenda, but it might change some of the words you use in communicating your agenda or which part of your agenda you focus on, you know, at which stage in the campaign. And you're targeting, you know, I mean, I, I just, you know, one of the best things that Robbie Mook did on our campaign in 2016 is he had a um, in-house analytics operation that was, you know, 30, 35 people, very robust operation. And so we had our finger on the pulse in terms of what we were doing constantly and what was working and what wasn't working. And I just, you know, it's kind of, to an extent, malpractice these days from a campaign, you know, a strategic campaign standpoint to to not do that. It would sort of surprise me. But, you know, I'm curious, Jamal, do you think Elizabeth Warren will will endorse anytime soon or do you think she's going to keep her powder dry? It's so hard to tell. I mean, she is kind of, uh, a very thoughtful person, obviously. She was a woman mm-hmm. with all the plans. She's amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> so I don't know if she had a plan for this or not. Uh, but, you know, in one sense, you think, oh, she surely is a Bernie. You know, she is Bernie. That would make sense for her to be with Bernie. But, you know, she didn't go with Bernie in 2016. She went with Hillary Clinton. So there may be something about Bernie Sanders, you know, that she's just not sold on about him being the president of the United States. Yeah, and she did sort of morph into a her message morphed into a unity message uh, as this campaign evolved, and she was talking a lot more about being that bridge between the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and and the you know Joe Biden um, more uh, you know pragmatic wing of the party, uh, and and in the fact that she you know she has not only big big ideas, but she has plans to get them done and she can get it done. And, you know, she started to make that contrast. I, I was a little surprised and I, that, you know, she didn't, she, she waited a really long time to actually go toe to toe with Bernie. Uh, many of the candidates in the race did for whatever reason, they, they seem to be afraid to sort of take them on in the debate stage and they picked other people to, 
to uh, go after. And, you know, at some point, you know, her road to the nomination had to go through Bernie Sanders because those are voters that you would think would be um, available to her. And uh, I just thought that that was a tactical error. I think she realized too late that she had all the Sanders-inclined voters she was going to get, right? And in fact, her vote growth was actually to the right of her, not to the left, right? That she really needed to go after um, Amy Klobuchar's voters, or she needed to go after you know some of Joe Biden's voters who might be getting disaffected. You know, I heard a lot from a lot of African American women who really were fond of um, Senator Warren. Um, but I think they wanted to hear, you know, her, her, her campaign got very intellectual at the end. In the beginning, it seemed kind of like a, I felt like it had an emotional uh, weight to it, but at the end, it all seemed really intellectual. And I think, um, you know, voters wanted to hear her stories again, you know, about how she got into this, and why she made these choices. And, you know, she was a single mom. Listen, people talk about her being from a Harvard professor, Elizabeth Warren is a child of a janitor who was a single mom who went to University of Houston and Rutgers and battled her way from like uh, you know from University of from Rutgers University Law School to Harvard University professorship. It's a story of American accomplishment and aspiration, and I just think she never she never quite let us in on it, <laughs> right? Like let us enjoy it. Yeah, I think you raise a really smart point about, and again, I wasn't looking at their data, their internal numbers, but I would have to think that the once the once Bernie Sanders really consolidated the liberal um, base around him and his candidacy, that Elizabeth Warren could have probably her campaign could have done a better job going after some other voters and trying to chip away, um, because, like you said, I mean, especially among African American women who are, you know, frankly, like some of the smartest voters in our party in terms of their intuition and their gut feelings about candidates, um, especially with her policies. Um, you would think that she could have made a play. She could have tried to dip into the Biden coalition. She could have tried to dip into um, Mayor Pete's coalition, Klobuchar. Um, you know, it just going after the Bernie coalition probably was not the right thing for her to do once she actually lost those folks. Yeah, it was like she was trying to stay. In the end, she was trying to be too relevant to too many people, right? Like, you kind of have to define yourself in a multi-candidate field and let people know what they're voting for. And it's a little bit the trap that Kamala Harris got caught in, which yep. is trying not to offend people mm-hmm. versus trying to go after people. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Jamal, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for joining us uh, Thanks, today Jamal. on The Electables. You got a prediction um, for Tuesday in Michigan? Um, I don't have a prediction, but, you know, at this point, I think if even if Joe Biden basically ties Bernie Sanders in Michigan, the numbers of the delegates as you look forward, you know, in the states going forward, um, I, I think it gets harder and harder for Senator Sanders to, to take the lead in any significant way. Um, this is just starting to feel like it's gelling. There is one there is one thing that could change this math, though, which is they do have a one on one debate coming up. And, you know, Vice President Biden is a really great candidate. He's a really great human being, but he's not always the greatest debater. And so um, he's really got they got to make sure he, that debate solid, I think, to hold on to the lead and keep the momentum from shifting again. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I believe um, March 15th is uh, the next debate. So. 
Um, Jamal Simmons, the great Jamal Simmons, our friend. Thanks for coming back on the Electables for my partner in crime. Thank you too. This is awesome. I love this. I love this podcast. Yeah. Well, it's maybe. Jamal. Uh, um, and uh, and how do people follow you on Twitter? Um, I am uh, at Jamal Simmons on Twitter and at Real Jamal Simmons on Facebook and Instagram. Because somebody else decided to be at Jamal Simmons, so I had to be at Real Jamal Simmons. <laughs> you had to be the real one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy, for coming on. All right, y'all. Have a good time. Thanks, Jamal. Bye. For my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell. Uh, this has been The Electables. We'll catch you next time. We'll be right back. 